0: Unsee, Unsee the, future. the Future. The Hopi Chatty Bits. Hello and welcome to Unsee the Future, the Hopi Chatty Bits with me, Timo Peach, in which I meet artists, solar punks, and change makers reimagining the stories we think we're in. There are times, I think, in crisis in particular, where it feels like we can't change anything. We have to just hang on, survive, and get through. And we can all think of people in different parts of the world, but especially perhaps in Ukraine, for some of us closer to there, who will be just doing that, fighting for every breath, fighting for every moment. But the call over you and me feeling helpless watching events like this, which is in effect nothing new, is to find our own agency and to question the stories we think we're in as other things try to emerge. And that's the purpose of my podcast, is to have conversations with people who are helping me explore what it means to change the story we think we're in and the narrative structure going on in our heads. My contention being that that's what's driving our behaviours everywhere. And they're not great behaviours, are they? So who have I got joining me in this fourth episode? I am delighted to have today's guest Uh, She is an award-winning filmmaker, research designer, writer and educator as well as president of the International Bateson Institute based in Sweden. Her work asks the question, how can we improve our perception of the complexity we live within so we may improve our interaction with the world and is that timely or not? An international lecturer, researcher and creative, she is the founder of WARM Data and the WARM Data Lab, bringing together a team of international thinkers, scientists and artists to innovate a form of inquiry, which Nora coined as transcontextual research. Based on the question, how can we create context in which to study the context? From her first book, Small Arcs of Larger Circles, she has developed a very personal approach to the study of systems and complexity to explore a process she observes as how living entities evolve when interacting with each other in a shared context of learning. Her work brings the fields of biology, cognition, art, anthropology, psychology and information tech together into a study of the patterns in ecology of living systems. She says great stories, great music, great art, great love, great ideas have tension, incongruity, paradox. This era of change, breakdown, breakthrough is going to require a form of play that allows for epistemological confusion as old ways of perception twist into new presuppositions. And she says, in the fissures where the sharp edges of our fragmentation have cut through the tissue of togetherness, and left it to bleed. The patterns of our perception crave play. She is the intensely interesting, and I think rather wonderful, Nora Bates. Nora, welcome to Unsee the Future, the Hopi Chatty Bits. And that was a, a really cut down look at you and your uh, your work and involvement. There's a lot to talk about.
1: I loved it. It was so fun to watch you say all that.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: I have to live up to it now.
0: <laughs> I know. I don't mean to put pressure on your shoulders, but you've been thinking and working for a long time into this issue, and we find ourselves in an era of crisis now that seems to make it even more relevant. In some ways, nothing's changed. In some ways, a lot has changed. Do you feel your context has changed since you started this work? mm.
1: You know, I, I, what I feel is that what's happening is that people are beginning to see the complexity more. And thank goodness for that, because honestly, 15 years ago, it, I was pulling my hair out trying to say, listen, there's this interconnectedness and things are moving in systems. And even though systems theory came in in the 50s and 60s and, and prior yeah. to that, I mean, most indigenous cultures in the world have been using a process of perception that looked at the relationships, okay, that later the systems theorists made into an academic theory and the cyberneticians came in. and But for the last couple of hundred years, all of us who are in this world of um, industry have been trained to actually perceive the world as a kind of a machine and that even our lives are like a factory, you know, we're like, we're born and then someone fills us up with knowledge and then we do the thing and then we get kind of packed up and we get a label and we go into the world and we, and, and it's all very linear Yeah, And the causality is linear. The language is linear. The the whole dream is linear. Yes. Suddenly, um, you know, kind of in the middle of the pandemic in particular, it became really obvious that this idea of systemic problems and systemic Mm. process was real. That COVID was economic. It was education. It was family. It was politics it was history it was tech it was right it was all these things it wasn't just the doctors
0: no it, exactly and we're all getting much more used to words like intersectional and structural as well as systemic mm-hmm. uh, these are becoming everyday words for everyday people now i was thinking of a great way to to start the complexity of, of how you approach this your language is is richly poetic and inspiring uh, but richness has to be sat with. And I was wondering where to start because, it, it, you know, right now more than ever, it's a bit of an ask to invite, to ask people to invite chaos, trust, com- trust complexity and fund systems change. That sounds like a big academic ask. But I wanted to ask you as a way in to tell the lifeboat story.
1: Okay, so the lifeboat story is actually um, a story, it's, it's an ethics Um, exercise that often gets given to kids or, you know, sometimes in organizations, there's a coaching exercise. And the idea is that you need to think through how you would um, make decisions in an emergency situation where you have limits and so the idea is this: There's a, a a lifeboat, and there's 50 empty seats in the lifeboat, but there's a hundred drowning people in the water. And the question is, how are you going to choose who gets on the boat? Right. Right. And so then you have to try to figure out, you know, well, what would be the criteria? Who's going to make the criteria? Um, you know, most kids in that moment, try immediately to change the rules, right? Because human beings don't want to, we don't want to leave anybody in the water, right? So, right? so let's try to change the rules. But no, 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 you can't do that. Don't change the rules. Here's you can't the rules.
0: change the rules, Nora. You
1: can't change the rules of the game. You have to, you you know, come up with your own criteria. And the criteria um, become very dark, actually, I- immediately. It's just this kind of heartbreaking Um, way to get a group of people's imaginations in motion um, to be asking questions like, well, this person is a young person. So does that mean that they're more valuable to the future? Or does that mean that since they don't have education and experience that they're less valuable? There's an old person. They have more experience, but they could get sick. They could be a cost to the society. Are they less valuable or more valuable? Here's a sick person. Is this person more valuable or less valuable? Or here's you,
0: like, I, I feel like we should be getting a whiteboard and doing some sort of, I don't know, point system. I wonder if anybody else has done a point system for how <laughs> people are valued. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it's horrifying. Mm. And I, I I've always hated that exercise. Um Because it gets up the questions all going in the wrong direction. And, you know, I mean, honestly, we are in a moment where we are looking at all sorts of crises from economic, political, cultural, ecological, um, pandemic, etc. And so the need for people to come together and actually explore and imagine how they're going to get through things together, how they're going to find a way through together Mm. is so important and so you know the thing with the lifeboat story is that actually it's um developed by this guy garrett Hardin, and um he's the guy who wrote the tragedy of the commons and you know there's quite a bit of of work that is in everyday ecological um discourse that has is you know is touched by Hardin's seminal ideas and thinking, like natural resources, like yeah. population, like right. And and the thing about Hardin is he was a card carrying eugenicist. Yes. Right. So, so, eugenics, you know, in that moment, you know, in fact, it's the statisticians, all of them, I'm pretty sure it's all of them. Um, in that in that moment were part of the eugenics movement.
0: It's the sort of zero-sum way of divide, dividing down, boiling down what a human being is. It'll be a unit of some kind or other.
1: Yeah, a unit that uses resources mm. uh, and that can be measured. And, you know, if you switch the story just the tip, just the tiniest little bit, and suddenly you see that these are human beings in the water, They're not floating numbers. They're human beings. They have experience. They have, they have life, they have dreams, they have language, they have, you know, ancestors. They have they have all kinds of complexity in them. Just like you do, and just like I do. And you know, when we started this conversation, whatever it was, five minutes ago, 10 minutes ago. What we are discovering right now is what we bring out in each other. Who am Mm. I when I'm with you, Timo?
0: Yeah, a little sillier, possibly a little sillier. And
1: and and that's it's not negating of who I am when I'm with anybody else, but who I am with you is different. And what you and I can dream up together, what ideas, the way my ideas or language enters your imagination and heart and it's fantastic it's like this there's this intimate realm of possibility that is not only intimate but infinite
0: that's this seems to me such a lovely way into your work the idea that who i am with you is a different version of me than with other people and that's like another frag a fractal fragment of who i am the kind of uh, the crystal of who I am, reflecting a slightly different version of light. And if that's our starting point, maybe we can come up with whole different solutions to w- whether it's a problem having 50 people still in the water or not. But the, It also speaks about teamwork, doesn't it? That there's a magic to some mix of humans and a, a dark magic to another where things mm-hmm. just don't work, don't flow.
1: And, and that's the thing, is that I think there's... Um you know if we were on the boat or in the water we would figure it out we would find mm. a way you know nature finds a way this is what is the most natural thing is this kind of stochastic improvisation of figuring things out as paths unfold before us we find new ways to to respond yes and um so We would, whatever, tie our clothes together. We would take turns swimming. We would find stuff that floats. We would, what one group of people would come up with would be very different than another group. Yes. And so trying to come up with a methodology to solve the problem in itself is a negation of the potentiality that every group Mm -hmm. of people has. And... So I think for me, in my work, one of the questions I'm really working on is, how do we nourish the flexibility we don't yet know we're gonna need?
0: Oh, how can we nourish the flexibility we don't yet know we're going to need? These are, these are like all your turns of phrase, your idioms and references are, are very warm, poetic, human language. And you simply use the term warm data to describe this more qualitative approach than quantitative. So my question to you is where do you think all this logic robot world stuff comes from in humans that we all want to nail things down and get in boxes? Where is how has it got to this extreme, do you think? The robot thinking?
1: I think that it's coming through all different contexts of our lives. Um, it, you know, we get it in school. We get taught that this is different than that. So the education system is, you know, in these little step by step, the way we perceive yeah. ourselves as individuals, our whole way of exploring identity is actually as a kind of isolated node. And there's nothing isolated about you as a node, my friend. You are. Like,
0: <laughs> where's the no.
1: and, and so the way. You, I mean, am, am I, do I end at this skin or do I extend into the ideas and the ancestry and language and my microbiome and my, you know, who am I? Mm. How do I know where I stop and start and my culture Yeah, stops and starts? Because there's no stop and start. This robot thing is being produced in all directions. And that's why it's so potent. Because it's at the grocery store, it's in the finance, it's in the health system, it's at the school, it's in the way that we think about parenting, it's in the way that we talk about how to get successful, it's in the way we think about what personal development is, it's, in, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so when you get multiple um, impressions of a singular set of patterns, they, they start to reinforce each other. Yes. and we're getting this reinforced from every direction to the point where you know when I say we have to look at the relational process you know yeah. the, the thing is not the thing you are not you you are a set of relationships that are you know go wildly out in many directions and that's very uncomfortable why is yes, that uncomfortable
0: is. I don't know why I do mean, you think it is i
1: there's some strange security in thinking that there is control. Mm. But The the mysterious thing for me about that is honestly, like it seems pretty clear that this doesn't work. Mm. I mean, who among us has ever actually been in control (laughs) of your marriage, (laughs) of your kids, of your body, of your love life, of your, I mean, your, your appetites, your like really, really? We think yeah. that we're going to be in control if we just do this one more methodology?
0: Uh-uh. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. I, was, I was thinking this morning, I'm I'm in the middle of writing chapter four of my book, Think Like an Artist and Change the World. And I'm looking at the principle of how uh, art practices bring things to life. They They put mm-hmm. Blood and warmth and connect emotional connection into things, so they come they they come alive. But I was looking at um, Edward Hopper's, you know, dead famous images, but especially the Nighthawks uh, from nineteen forty two. That beautiful sort of modernist mm-hmm. captured moment. And although it it it's definitely a seductive image a, a, of the people in the diner, two in the morning, yeah. whatever it is, they seem isolated, and there is a sort of promise of something else coming. It's still done. Half look like uh, inner landscapes in him, but in America, that was sort of felt the burden of individualism and lostness. You know, before before America had even reached its height in the fifties, that is a burden, isn't it? Trying to actualize yourself all alone as an as an individual node.
1: It's not happening anyway. I mean, you know, even yeah. in the lifeboat story. Right? We're talking about all each each person having this fantastic, unique collection of experiences and ways of responding to the world. And yet there's so much that we have shared. Yeah. And that, that come from context, that come from mm. our culture, that come from language, that come from shared versions of history. May mm. not be the right version because there's a lot of different versions but we sometimes share a version yeah Um, and and when you share an illusion that's so much more potent than sharing a something that is real whatever real is yeah because because it can continue to move and shift and shape and yeah so that dream of the agency of the individual Is is full of paradoxes, actually.
0: Yes, it is. But you're making me think. I mean, all this principle is simply bringing to mind uh, the uh, the the principle of fractals, uh, the Mandelbrot set, and the idea that what was that? Who wrote the book in the gosh in the '30s? First looking at the idea of fractalization, the book was Uh, entitled "How long? How long is the coastline of the United Kingdom?"
1: It was. I can't remember. Anyway, go ahead.
0: But, it's, but the point there is that the simplest question of, right, well, how long is, how long is the coastline of a country? Oh, well, it's, it's accepted as this long. Is it? How, how close in are you? Are you measuring every pebble? Because the more you measure the, the, at, a, at a smaller thing, the longer that number gets. And that's very immediately mind-boggling. But also I think that's a burden, isn't it, that we want simpler stories to be able to get out of bed and not feel overwhelmed.
1: I think that we're going to have to rethink overwhelm,
0: Mm. you know,
1: because honestly we are overwhelmed and, Mm. and there's nothing more overwhelming than a whole lot of consequences from having misunderstood the actual rhythm and patterns of life and been creating a lot of incongruity that is disrupting everything that is exhausting. It is where, where, if you can begin to perceive the way that relationships are moving, and perceive that in the, and then you can respond to it in ways that cause far less uh, destructive consequences. Mm. So that's it's, actually, keep- it's it's much less exhausting.
0: I, I'm interested in how we move into that practice, that the idea of holding our stories much more lightly, much more consciously as an illusion, like a helpful illusion. Like This is a construct. It's a kind of play that we're all playing, but we know it's a play and the play can change. How do you imagine us being able to reapproach this play and, and work into the practice daily that you're talking about to free us of that burden? How do we start? as individuals?
1: Well, there's a lot of different ways to start. Art is really important, okay? Because art
0: That's my own brand. Thanks, Nora. (laughs) No
1: no problem. Um, But because it pushes the way that you're perceiving. It pushes the edges of your understanding. And and that's really important because it it makes you think about how you were thinking. It makes you perceive Mm. about how you're perceiving. Mm. It, and so the second we start to do that, um, you get a little bit of leverage in your matrix. You start to see, aha, there is a matrix. Now you haven't gotten yourself out of it, but you have actually seen it. And so you have mm-hmm. a little more um, possibility to move mm-hmm. differently in it. The other thing that I would say is really important is... um is cultural confusion spending time with people who are from another culture than your own
0: right
1: and finding those places where you get confused where you don't understand where you thought it was one thing and it turned out to be another because the the, the trickiest bit is that when when these patterns and and habits of perceiving, they get so familiar that we start to think that they're real. And we can't imagine that that actually they might just be one possible narrative, one possible explanation, one possible expression. I mean, why do we have to measure everything?
0: Mm.
1: What (laughs) about start to ask the question, does this require measurement, or does it not?
0: Well, that's just a crazy question, Nora. And uh, obviously, you're completely losing your mind now. Why do we have to measure everything? Yeah, why do we have to? Do we have to measure this, or should we listen to this?
1: Should, yeah, and you know, the measurements are not telling us things. In fact, what they're doing is giving us information which is so decontextualized. Okay, so in order to actually capture a Mm -hmm. measurement of a a living system, you have to pull it out of its context, Mm. right? If you want to measure the child's development, you have to take it out of its family, out of his, out of his his play world, out of his length, you know, out of everything that is producing the way that he's being in the world, or she. Yes. And then you can start to measure how they do on a test. But that test is totally, totally, completely decontextualized. And yes. So we... Hello,
0: the entire global education system.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, we, you know, the, the, the complexity of the child, the multiple contexts in which that child is learning to be in their world, you know, there are... Many children who learn to hold back mm. because they need to. Yes. For survival, for culture, to show respect, to in all kinds of ways. And then we say, you know, they're really, they really aren't very uh, developed in their mm. ability to express themselves. And that's just not right.
0: Yeah. But <laughs> might the be, they might just be observing the whole time going, I'm not opening my mouth yet, mate. I'm just. Taking in what lunacy is going on, but but yes, they might look less responsive,
1: right? Or kids who learn not to be um, very affectionate, yeah. And then we say, well, you know, they're they there's something, you know, they're very aloof. There's something wrong with them. They haven't emotionally developed. Well, really, Mm. maybe they have. Maybe they have developed the sensitivity to when it's appropriate to be affectionate that goes beyond or or follows a different set of patterns than the ones you're accustomed to. And and that's the kind of thing that's happening in all directions.
0: In all directions. I know. How do you carry that from childhood? If I might ask a more personal question, how did you find growing up in the system as it was your father, of course, is, is the name behind the Bateson Institute. Was he a, a very academic uh, person? Was he a very warm person? You've clearly followed in his footsteps, so he must have inspired. But how did you, how did you form these warm data sets of your own growing up?
1: Hmm. I mean, the answer to all of that is yes. He was very academic. Yes, he was very warm. Yes, he was... Um, you know, interested in being able to perceive and respond to lots of different situations. Right. So um, he worked in information technology and psychology. He worked in anthropology. He did lots of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, he, because, okay, and this is where the warmth comes in, because... If you read my dad's work and you can find your way through the um, intellectual language, what you will find underneath it is an incredible affection for life. Mm. And and that for me is where the warmth is. So (laughs) that, you know, rage fight, be confused, have sorrow, do whatever we need to do, write whatever metaphors be in whatever art form, but do it with affection for life. Mm -hmm. And, And that is where what I'm hoping for and the lifeboat story is that, right? It's like with affection for life, you come into that story and you say, let's find a way, let's figure this out. And it changes the direction.
0: It changes the direction you're facing, exactly. I think my own feeling, you're you're striking right to the heart of the way I'm seeing this at the moment, which is our call is to champion life. Mm. And that's immaterial what the source of life is, actually, the backstory to life. In a sense, doesn't matter. We can all get around this, whether we Mm. are whatever our belief system, our backstory. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that we represent the lunacy of, of not of life at all in the universe, but life that can write bad songs in the bedroom and, and pull out of itself and go, what, why am I feeling this? This is incredible. And that's what our bad habits and our inadequate stories are extinguishing. We should be champions of the very existence of life right in in you and me individually it's your gift Mm -hmm. my gift
1: and and there's a kind of affection i want to go back to that word affection it's a lovely word because there's um this great piece that i pulled out of my dad's work recently and posted all over the place um where there's a, a, a dialogue between father and daughter, and it's mm. getting all very like, what's the, you know, it's all impossible. How do you deal with systemic problems, right? Because the problem is everywhere. And how do you get rid of it, right? This machine metaphor is everywhere. How do we get rid of it? And if we can't get rid of it by changing the parts, how do we know what to do? We do ah, and we and the child is getting frustrated. And finally she asks, what's the point? If you can't make it change, what's the point? To which the father replies, if you had ever been in love, you wouldn't ask that question. Yes. And and there it is, right? So I having grown up in California, grow very weary of a lot of um kind of saccharine surface um kind of lightweight positivity. It it kind of bugs mm-hmm. me. Um, because it doesn't really have affection for life. Affection for life means that you're ready to get down knee deep in the mud, that you're willing to deal with the blood, the sweat, the tears, that yeah. you're willing to stay up all night in the vomit, and be, and still have affection for life. Mm. And so I don't, I don't readily start throwing love around as something because people often trivialize that. But this notion of um, seeing life through our own experience of love. Mm. Seeing life, life, a meadow, a, an ocean, a society, your family, life. Yes. Through your own experience of love and and the reason that that resonates for me is that it's filled with irrationality it's filled with with things that are moving in ways you don't know you don't understand the pathways that open up are going places you haven't been able to predict or name or discover and and that is essentially what evolution is doing
0: yes but right. it's, doing it in, it's doing it in our consciousness. We don't just reflect evolutionary processes in our bodies. We reflect it in our imaginations, the need for diversity mm. and the way we, we resist it. Or, yes, the, this, this whole process you're discussing. So how do we tackle the fear of being okay with the unknown, of surfing all known unknowns <laughs> and unknown unknowns?
1: You know, I just got to tell you, that I got to switch that question around and, and reverse it and say, okay, so what actually is safe? Name Mm. one thing that's safe because staying on the course that we're in boxed into our little ideas of our, you know, node like identities, marching through the world, trying to collect material points. This is clearly not safe. Clearly. Yeah. Clearly not safe. So, (laughs) So what's safe? And and so for me, go back to the lifeboat story. What's safe? The only thing that I really see that brings something that could be some sort of distant relative to safety is is nourishing that possibility of being able to perceive each other's and our own complexity and responding to that. That is. Is much safer.
0: Mm. You're so making me. Th-
1: that? We got eight billion people. TikTok, TikTok. The time's ticking. Mm. How do we do that?
0: Yes, you're making me think two things. There, one is a long cherished belief by me that love is a verb; it's a doing mm-hmm. word. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also been coming to the idea lately that you know, in a way, oneness. When you boil down subatomic physics and boil down just the common sense of looking at systems on Earth, everything is one man. And that may as well be the word love as well. But the other thing you're making me think is an artistic principle of embodiment that the fear is lost in moving out into it. That's where you learn. That's where you flow around the uncertainty. That's where you strengthen your muscles. That's where you're the fear is in the unknown perhaps in the disconnection
1: i mean i i'm not really that afraid of fear i think that fear can also be an affection for life so mm-hmm. um you know i i i think it's okay i learn a lot from my fear yeah i just don't park myself in it indefinitely Mm. Um, and I think one of the things for me is that you know, I made this film about my dad. Yes, and it was a really interesting experience because when you make film about somebody, you have a linear form of expression.
0: Yeah, a story
1: in which to describe a complex system, i.e., a human being. Mm. And I've really felt the weight of this. Because even though my father died when I was young, I didn't want to make a movie that killed him. I didn't want to sum him up, package him up and have that be that. Right. I wanted to find a way to describe him that allowed my relationship with him and his ideas to keep growing and your relationship and whoever else was viewing the film to be in this open-ended process that a poem allows you into where prose shuts you out. Mm. Right, I didn't want to say Gregory Bateson was da 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 da, da period.
0: Yes. Right? Period.
1: Because that would kill him. Yeah. What I wanted to do was to open up uh a possibility that he, he could live on um, mm. in in our ideas and in our way of thinking. So, and that was his whole work too was this question of how do you describe a living being? How do you? Yeah, describe
0: good, it and and time? not kill not kill it by describing it. Much like um, uh, you know principles of, of particle physics as well. The idea, if you look at it, you've changed it. Uh, right. if, you, if you write down someone's life, you've killed them. That's a big storytelling challenge, isn't it? Now, I think he – am I right in saying that he said this quote, interesting phenomena occur when two or more rhythmic patterns are combined. And these phenomena illustrate very aptly the enrichment of information that occurs when one description is combined with another. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I find the fact that that starting point ends up with the word with the words affection for life. Mm-hmm. Now you have a phrase uh, that you've in one of your more recent papers, uh, poiesis Your this is a really interesting kind of development from what you've done since your first book, moving towards publishing a book on warm data, mm-hmm. an unseen coalescence. Towards vitality, oh, it's another delicious phrase of yours—an unseen coalescence towards vitality. How are you exploring this word?
1: Oh, I love this. This is so much fun, um and there's there's hope here. There's there's real hope here because sometimes working with complexity and systems, it all seems like it's all so entangled and interwoven that there's no way to make anything change. Um, afani poesis—the word is made of two greek roots afani meaning unseen and uh, poesis becoming so we see the word "afani" funny in um, words like diaphanous yes or fantasy or phantom and poesis you see in poetry you see in auto a term that's that's well known in the systems world by varela and maturana mm. um, and uh I just, after a couple of years, well, a couple, it's actually been 10 years now that I've been working with Warm Data. Yeah. And what has happened is that I have started to just have to stop apologizing and say, you know, most of the things that are happening around us have been brewing for a long time in ways we weren't paying attention to. Yes. And so- so We are, you know, a little bit over fascinated with emergence Mm. when things are actually it's happening. But in order for that happening to happen, it has to have actually submerged and been in a process of unseen coalescence. And then after some time, you start to get this emergence. Mm. And so, you know, this is really easy to point to in 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 very negative ways okay so the the word insidious comes to mind as as looking at you know the way gradual processes over time become really harmful addiction mm. corruption racism mm. sexual harassment um mm. you know gender all sorts of issues of our world are yep. rooted consumerism greed And and again,
0: you you embody them, you practice them up and they harden and they calcify and they become immovable seeming because you keep doing them.
1: And because things are, you know, we were talking earlier about the way how in transcontextual process, you get this pattern in school and then you see it in the health system and then you see Mm. it in the legal system and you see it in the economic system. And these things are coalescing in ways that we aren't, really sure how and suddenly we're like how come we keep thinking like robots yes right and and there it is you you know one example that that i would say in another direction is that you can't make somebody love you Mm. whatever it is that's coalescing is beyond your reach you can't tell somebody you have to respect that person hmm It doesn't work. You can't tell people to just be at peace Mm. because there have been these coalescings over time. And you don't know it. You don't know what what brought you to this moment. You know, like sometimes you might hear a song that you haven't heard in many years. And when you hear it, you hear it totally differently because your life has been coalescing and suddenly something you never heard before you can hear you're ready to hear it. In a ready
0: mood. to hear it.
1: You're ready to hear it. Where mm. does that readiness come from? Well, another way to, to to play with this is to ask the question, you know, again about evolution. How, how does an organism know how to evolve? Yeah. I mean, think about that, right? So we have all these habituated, familiar ways of talking, of being in relationship, of, you know, an earthworm has all these habituated, structural, informed ways of being. How does it change that? It doesn't know how to be other than it is. Mm. All of its familiar processes, and yet it happens, so there is a kind of a, a storage, an underground, an mm-hmm. underwater place, a, a, an, an unshaped world where these coalescing experiences are meeting each other, changing each other, and becoming. So for from- for me, this is the big question of not necessarily what to do about all the popcorn problems that are popping up right, left, and center, but to pay attention to what are we allowing to go into that afani-poetic world.
0: Mm.
1: What's, what's submerging in us? Not so we can see it, because I don't think it's a good idea to try to see it. Um, I think it's a good idea to leave the unseen unseen. But to mm. let it be wild and to nourish it so that you have possibilities, right? Flexibility that you don't know you're going to need yet.
0: Mm. And you are, I mean, you're describing it in, in very, very obviously there, simply the processes of evolution. This idea that for umpteen million years, nothing on earth seemed to change. And then all of a sudden, Apparently out of nowhere, one day a switch is flicked and something emerges, something erupts. Uh, That seems to make no sense to us, but you're describing that exact process happening everywhere all the time culturally. Once again, we are in consciousness embodying evolutionary processes, inextricably a part of life. But I'm interested in the question, we're given the extra layer of, what seems like an extra layer of actual consciousness, where we can Mm. write those bad poems and try and think about it this is a dumb question but it's also the really the daily one where's the line how do we draw the line between agency and acceptance
1: i mean okay you asked for it this agency thing is an issue it is an issue and it's an issue because it is actually not so easy to figure out what agency is and it's a mm. word we throw around all too readily and you know are you doing something from you or are you enacting the patterns of your culture mm. and your context and how would you know the difference yeah so it's a problem and 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 that problem is wonderful okay that problem is filled with tension that makes you pay attention. Yeah. If I'm asking myself, am I, well, am I doing this because it's part of my culture, or does this really come from me? And you know, even when we talk about imagination, right? We, we have to ask ourselves, where did these ideas come from?
0: Yeah, what are the frames of reference? What are the structures that we put together in our minds?
1: what is the soil in which this sprout came from
0: mm.
1: this seed sprouted and and so we we have the danger of actually having our own imaginations continue to sprout ideas that go back into the mechanistic metaphor because that's the soil we're brewing them in that's our the way our language expresses yeah and, and so so what i want to do is not be a downer here but actually to say the exciting thing is to pay attention to it and to start asking yourself is this you know is this language that i'm using is this word bringing with it Mm -hmm. ideas that i really want to to bring into this and and that's why sometimes i feel like i need to make up new words because i don't want to bring the other words with me and Mm -hmm. and so I think what I would like to think about is, you know, when you are in a situation, you're in the kitchen with your kids, and your kids aren't doing the dishes, and you're the parent. Okay. I'm speaking from my own experience.
0: <laughs> yes. I'm
1: in the kitchen and I'm the parent. Okay, let's 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 rephrase that. And I feel like there's all this cultural weight on me that says, as a good parent, I need to teach my children to do the dishes because they need to pull their weight and then but they're not doing the dishes. They're on their phones, they're totally atomizing into their little individual nodes because they're also learning to be individual nodes Mm -hmm. and that they should have an identity that's a particular individual node. And And here we are in our kitchen and we're all dealing with all these cultural swarms of scripts and they're just tangling us all up.
0: Right there in the kitchen, right right there by the the pile of dirty dishes. That's what's going on in and around and through you.
1: Right. That's what's happening. Every one of us. And so it's that moment of just taking that quick step back and, and taking a look. There it is. Here we all are dealing with all these cultural scripts and teleprompters and ideas of what's good, what's bad, what we should, what we shouldn't, how to be successful, how to get out of it, how to be manipulative, how to be clever, how to be loved. Right. And it's all in there. And somehow we also have to get the dishes done. Yeah. And so then I'm faced with this moment of like, what? how is my contribution into this scene is like a, it's like a, it's like some, I'm putting something into an ecology of communication. What am I going to put in there Mm. that allows it to grow in another way? What am I going to, what's in the tone of my voice? What's in the choice of my words? What's in the gesture of my being, what's in the resonance of my emotions, as I say something to my kids that says,
0: "What is the logos that you are bringing?"
1: Yeah, what? What are you? What potion are you dripping into the soup?
0: <laughs> yes, you know. Yes. And there's <laughs> and long been a romance, I think, that is a, a reassuring, often in science fiction, of coming back to the idiosyncrasies of humans and yeah. the domestic silliness. Of ordinary people. It's there in in Tolkien. The hobbits are the most, you know, domestic, silly provincial creatures. And you know, when at the end the the king of the whole realm says, you kneel to no man, it gets me there. That is a romantic view, but it reminds us of being grounded with those big hairy feet, doesn't it? To be grounded to the soil in our heads in the clouds trying to work out the, the complexity, yet our feet must be grounded in the soil. Does that, is there something in that when you're feeding the chickens, when you're despairing at the kids, not doing the washing up? Is that, is, is that how you cope with the two? Is it just remembering I'm connected to both those scales?
1: And I think for me, I'm also in, a, I, you know, that for me, that moment is an invitation to be in affection of life. Here we all are and what are we going to do together how are we going to figure this out because i don't want my kids to grow up feeling humiliated by me because i told them that they didn't do the dishes when they should and they don't help with the waiting out to. and they're selfish and they're, you know there's a thousand scripts thousands of them about yes. not doing the dishes so how do i break from that In a way that is also not a methodology. I'm not going to drop a methodology here. If you're wondering how to get your kids to do the dishes, I'm just going to say this. Pay attention to the complexity and play in it. Be in it. Love in it. If you're afraid, be afraid in it. If you're angry, be angry in it. But be in it. And and that's where whatever the response is, it's going to come. And, and your kids are paying attention. So I have this great story about my son. And and I asked him to take out the trash. He was about 12. This is so on point. And I was like, you know, Trevor, it would sure it'd be nice if you took out the trash sometime. You know, the things that you find coming out of your mouth. <laughs> they
0: just oh, come out, yes.
1: <laughs> oh, it's dreadful. And, and um, And Trevor looks at me, all right, and he smiles. And he goes, all right, Mom, I'll be happy to take out the trash. But... Can you give me like a half an hour to forget it with your idea?
0: <laughs> your kid <laughs> is smart. <laughs> Did you just you give him a round of applause?
1: <laughs> you see, they're watching, and and he, that was like fantastic because he nailed me, and he basically he's like, you know, can you find a better invitation? for us to figure out how to live together than to be a nagging such and such, because, you know, I love you, and I'm going to take out the trash, but I'm going to forget you came at me with that tone first. And, and I have such respect for that.
0: He's already got it. You go, all right, no, you've just grown up as much as I can reasonably expect anyone to. Well done, you've arrived. How does it feel? <laughs> because- no. Go
1: on. Yeah, because it's about the relationship. It's not about the dishes. Yes. Okay, so just to bring it all back, it's about looking at the complexity of relationships. And complexity is such a word, right? Really, yeah. let's just call it life. Mm. And and looking at life, making life, life-lifing, and knowing we're part of it and trying not to damage each other.
0: Mm. Can we I would that? say... Uh, I I want to keep talking for the next hour. I have this problem on the show because we're having such a lovely time. But uh, I feel there's so much to digest there for our lovely viewer listener. My last question to you is one that I like to ask my guests before we go. And that is, um, what uh, ancestral artefact would you like to leave forward for people yet to come? a notion or a symbolic item itself. Uh, what would you like to yeah, leave forward for others from your time here?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think it's more of a vibe. I like a vibe. Yeah, I think, I think it's something in the in-between. You know, it's not really anything I said. It's not really anything I did. It's nothing I owned. It's nothing I made. But something between all of those that has a kind of resonance um, that makes room for people to explore new pathways and find new ways of finding ways. And and doing that with affection for life.
0: Mm.
1: Whatever that means, a vibe.
0: That's perfect. Uh Nora Bateson, it's been an utter delight. And I hope we can talk again very, very soon. Bless you. Thanks for being on Unsee the Future.
1: Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun.
0: Unsee the Future. Were you taking notes? I shall put notes as I always try to do. Uh, in the full page of this over at unseethefuture.com. A huge thank you to Nora Bateson for taking time out of the complexity of ordinary life, feeding chickens, feeding the family, and dealing with such big issues in all our many layers of reality at the moment that we're all sharing. Uh, you can find out more about Nora at uh, the Bateson Institute. I'll put all the links below as well. And uh, I really thank you for spending time with this. You can find out more about me at unseethefuture.com, Timo Peach. I would say that the current uh, single from Momo Tempo, How Big, is out. Go get it. It resonates weirdly with everything that's happening at the moment. And in these times of conflict, I'm hoping you're finding the beginnings of some practices and tools to reframe the story you think we're in. Because this is how we do it we do it together and we live into each moment, each relational moment listening in and responding to the listening having the courage to not try and figure it all out in one dump like learning how to fly a Huey downloading it and now I know Kung Fu it's not like that you are weaving a thread as Rena said last week uh, so thank you for weaving your thread around this and for sharing it wherever you can. Unseethefuture.com, you'll find all the back episodes of the Hopi Chatty Bits. There you will also find my book, How to Think Like an Artist and Change the World, which I'm publishing each week at the moment with this first series of the Hopi Chatty Bits. Go and find it, see what you make about all those nine practices of artists that I think can help all of us, whatever we label ourselves, however creative you think you are, um, find the courage to in be involved with more, with less fear in the times we find ourselves in, though they appear fearsome and unknowable. You, sausage, have a part in it as much as I do. Thank you, and I'll see you next time on the Hopi Chatty Bits. Discover more links and video and reading on the blog of this post at unseethefuture.com. I'd be the first to get the future in your inbox. Subscribe to the Momo memos at unseethefuture.com forward slash amigos. Listen, read, ponder and share. Do. Unsee the Future is a Momo Tempo production. Obviously.